Hi, I'm going to try to, I'm going out of order this week. I have a few minutes here and I thought it occurred to me with the Parsha. And since in the podcast you do whatever you feel like doing. So I'm, instead of doing the, the yard site thing first and the Parsha later, I have an idea I'll do the Parsha one now. I'll think about the yard site one later. Which this week's Parsha's bow and it just a thought occurred to me while I was driving. And I said, you know, I'll just put it out there. The um, So let me get right down to business. Uh, but again, I want to thank the people that have been supporting you. I'm still trying to raise some money for a project we conceived of to have to redo some old um, lectures that the sound wasn't good, but I'll, I'll talk about that later. I don't want to get into that now. The, um, uh, this week's Parsha's Boat, and the uh, weirdest part of the story, it seems to me, at least this year, is the part which says, I want everybody to go and borrow money from the Egyptians. You know, Yishalumi, Mitzrayim, Klei Kesev, Klei Sobus, Molos. The God tells Moshe, before they leave Egypt, they go and tell everybody to go to uh, your neighbors, actually your comrades, your Reuso, Reim, and you know, Shalu Ishmeish Reu, Ishmeish Ruso, and what do you call it? And um, what shall I say? Tell them, you know, to lend you the money, gold and silver and, and clothes. And what's that all about? Actually, it's a very cheap kind of business. It looks like the Jews on the way out, they're taking something with them. And indeed, you know, Rashi says, as everybody knows, the Chazal, that uh, Hashem said, I promised Avram that when they would leave, and I want to be a liar. I, I, I get this, so that's okay, but really, I'll peep shot, like, what, what, what is going on over here? And wouldn't it be more noble to say, we're leaving Egypt, we're not taking anything? We uh, You know, what is it Moshe saying in the speech in the desert? Uh, you know, on the contrary, it's greater to say that they left with, I mean, this would be a more noble story. The Jews left broke, and not a penny to their name, but on Emuna. And they walked through the desert, surrounded by clouds, and by Mon, and by Be'er Miriam, and all that stuff, and it was a living, pure Emuna. That'd be better. This way, it's a little strange. They went out with gold and silver, and all that sort of thing, and, um, uh, you know, it's 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 funny. So, uh, there is a certain way of learning it, which I saw many years ago, I've mentioned many times, maybe I mentioned a podcast, I don't remember, uh, from Oznayim uh, Torah from Sarotskin, who obviously wrote this in the wake of the Holocaust, and um, the point is that um, how should I put it uh, let me just think how to phrase this after World War II was over so the Germans killed 6 million Jews more or less and in addition to that they took what I think is usually estimated at 6 billion dollars now if you talk about all the wealth that they confiscated the Germans I'm talking about and things like that from all the Jews scattered all over the place and many of the Jews were middle class and whatever uh, so they used to, I saw years ago, some historian or set of historians calculated $6 billion. And that's in money of the 1930s. So, um, now the war was over, and Hitler was killed, and the Nazis were defeated. And eventually, by 1949, you had a new German government. And meanwhile, the State of Israel came into being. And what happened was, early in the years of the State of Israel, Ben-Gurion negotiated with the Germans what they call Shilomim, reparations payments. And this was a process that took place in 1952, and eventually they signed a treaty 
1952, in which West Germany said, uh, we didn't do it, but Germany did it, and we said, successful state of Hitler, therefore we're taking a certain price, and we are going to pay, I think, $800 million. Uh, between 750 and 800 million, something like that. In, in money of that time. So, again, they took about $6 billion, but they paid back like $750 million or whatever. Now, the truth is, uh, I remember Germany bargained very hard, and they didn't want to pay, and so on and so forth, and President Truman twisted their arm. Uh, Germany did not realize at that time that their economy is going to shoot up, and it was something they could easily afford to do. And uh, as the years would go by, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, down till today, everybody knows that Germany happens to be the economic powerhouse of Europe. They're basically bankrolling everybody else. Because the Germans are just hard workers. Can't take that away from them. And they're very good at, uh, you know, running an economy. It's just, it, it is what it is. So when that happened, a huge fight broke out in the state of Israel. Whether or not Israel should negotiate with Germany. Those is Ben Gurion doing the right thing. And the leader of the opposition that time was Menachem Begin, head of the Heirut Party. I'm talking about 1952. And when this treaty was negotiated with Germany and submitted to the Knesset, all hell broke loose and there were riots and it almost got physical. And it was like crazy. Why? Because Begin and many other people said, like this, why are you even dignifying Germany to take money from them? It sounds like you're getting paid for Bubby and for Zadie. And it's like, you know, like they say, a Jew will do anything. Sell your mother. You really are selling your mother? And why are you giving them absolution? She'll put Germany in a moral cherem, they said, and on the contrary, have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Have no hana, even a shavapruta, from the murderers of our people, which they were, and the people who burned six million Jews and that sort of thing. Now, in the end, uh, Begin did not prevail, and Israel signed a treaty, this is the Ben-Gurion era, and Israel got the money, like 750, 800 million, which is a lot of money at that time, which Israel needed desperately. And to tell you the truth, and when that was over, Germany gave more money. And Adayom said Germany, freely on its own, without having to, has been giving Israel money you know, here and there and there and here. So, uh, I think those Naim Torah from Absarotsky was written probably in that environment. And let me put it this way. From the point of view of national honor, you can totally hear what Menachem Begin was saying. Uh, it'd be much more noble to say, I don't want to take a penny from the stinking damn Germans. Um, you know, I hear that. And, uh, you know, what you did cannot be made right with money. I hear that, and I honor that. Uh, and so does any decent person. Me'idach Gisa, I also hear what Ben-Gurion was saying. Israel is desperate, and uh, they need the money to settle the immigrants and build up the state. And moreover, we're only taking our own money back. Those they took, in addition to killing 6 million Jews, they also took 6 billion bucks worth of stuff. So if we get back a billion or less than a billion, frankly, uh, we're not taking money from you. We're recovering a stickle of what you stole from us. I hear that too, you know. And Ben Gurion gave a famous speech. He was saying to Germans, "Harutzach legami rashta legalyonavi setachav." You murdered, and then you also keep the money. You rashta. You're a Irish. So both. Let's put it this way: there's arguments on this side. There's arguments on that side. And as I said before, look, my parents took money afterward, my father was in the camps, my mother lost the husband, you know, all that stuff. And uh, and they needed the money back in the 50s and 60s very badly. So most people I know, uh, you know, in the refugees in Baltimore, elsewhere like that, survivors, you know, took money from Germany. It wasn't a fortune, but every little bit helps. And uh, that's literally, it's the least you can do. You know, it doesn't, nobody said, because I'm getting a check from Germany, I forgive them for the Holocaust. 
to even 1%. Obviously, one has nothing to do with the other. But in light of all that, I remember this. Naim Torah, I think I saw it many, many years ago, said, Daber Nobos, when God tells Moshe Rabbeinu to tell the Jewish people, please take the money, the Jews, he suggests, uh, were also in that mood. And he said, we don't want the money from the stinking Egyptians. They killed our parents, they killed our babies, they crushed them in the bricks, they put them in the straw, you know, all the t- horror stories of how the Mitzvah treated the Jews. And we don't want to say, how much are you getting for your mother and your father being re- re- recompensed? Uh, now that's an insight, which is cute, that could only be said by somebody who lived through the 1950s. You understand? And that's the genius of Parshanut. And sometimes one of the Farshim, because they lived at a particular time, like the Shilamim argument in Israel, so I'm sure there's no question in my mind, the Rabbi Sarotskin, who was living in Israel, you know, I'm talking about Rizalma Sarotskin, so we come up with that kind of art. I hear it. But on the other hand, it's very time-bound. Is this really what happened three, 3,500 years ago? I'm not sure. And all this, when I, like I say, it just came to me in a flash, all this led me to speculate, you know, what, what is really the shot? I'll pee-hop shot on this strange uh, request by God to tell the people, the bear no, please tell the people to take money and borrow the money, gold and silver and, and clothes from the Egyptians. You know, I'll pee-hop shot. And I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you something interesting. And then, I just opened now, before I sat down, I opened the Mikra Skidolas, I saw Cheskuni says something a little bit along those lines. And I'm sharing with this you because, in my opinion, it shows you how you have to read the Parsha in a full, broad sense. Here we have a story, as we all know, the Jewish people that were in Egypt and became enslaved. So the story starts in the time of Yosef, as we know. And then Yosef brought the brothers down, as we know. He set up in Goshen. And what happened? They got rich. Um, part of they got wealthy. They got strong financially, you know. Um, so they, they were doing pretty good. And uh, after all, the cattle business is a good business, the sheep and cattle. And the problem is they spread out of there and went to the rest of part of Egypt, as I've said before. Matim Alehards or some. But in Goshen, the Jews are doing God's fine, thank you very much. There's no doubt in my mind when Yosef came down there and his successors, when they set up the tax system, sure they gave Jews jobs in that sort of a government business. So that's what Jews did down the ages. Okay, so where are you going with this? So let's say, for example, that several generations go by in which the times were good before the slavery happened. Before, prior to that. So you had a fairly large growing Jewish population in Egypt, right? And they were fairly prosperous, right? So think about that. So they had land, they had a, a karka, matatlan, cattle, I don't know, whatever, whatever was considered wealth in those days, to some degree or another. I'm sure some Jews did better, some Jews did worse. But overall, they were definitely not the worst off group uh, financially in Egypt. And then things changed. Then starts the famous story that Paro somehow or other uh, speaks to the Egyptian people and says, let's agree with me. Let's get smart and uh, outwit the Jews and enslave them. And as we know, they proceeded to enslave them. Now, it's never been clear exactly how that went by. There's a famous story that you and I heard, uh, maybe Rashi talks about that he got him to work for one day for free, for free, and then he said, that's the amount that you have to do every day. Those kind of stories. But again, Pashib Shah, how did they enslave him? They enslaved him, knows they passed the law. It's like Hitler, you know. They just sell like this. From now on, all those who are Jews 
are going to be uh, reduced to slavery, which means it's a it's it's a little bit like the Germans, not exactly, of course, wasn't exactly genocide, but the Germans, uh, in which they're stripped of their goods. If the Jewish people were enslaved, consider well, my friends, if the Jewish people were enslaved and subjected to harsh labor, as many of more avodas parach, laman anosub esibosom. So if that happened, it means people who were free were all of a sudden surrounded by the police and the army, and say you're not free anymore, and they were carried off in some fashion or another, um, and deprived of their personal liberty. But not only that, they're deprived of their property. I mean, it's not like a guy owned an estate. And then he's a slave, and he comes back to his estate every night. Or a guy has a Cadillac, and you know he drives to work in the morning with the Cadillac, and works like a slave all day long, and then drives home in the Cadillac. They took away the Cadillac, you know what I'm saying? They took away all the goods. Which means the Jews lost a velt with the enslavement. It wasn't simply their personal, that they lost their personal liberty, which of course they did, but also their possessions. There must have been like a gigantic uh, hopping of the possessions. In my opinion... This is probably something uh, that Pyro did when he says, Pyro says to the people, Hominus Chakmolo, join together with me. If we all join together to enslave the Jews, then we'll share the goodies. Um, this I say in the basis of history because many times uh, wise kings, sneaky kings, will go and say, you know, I'm going to confiscate. I'll just off the top of my head, I don't know why this occurs to me. When Henry VIII uh, confiscated the, all the lands and, and territories and churches of the Catholic Church, he said to the nobles, you can share in it. You understand? That way, he made them a partner in crime. They, they, they benefited by this. So similarly, when Paro said, let's all enslave the Jews, it's also the idea, and you get their lands, and you get their metaltalin, and you get their goods. And, uh, and it happened. And Jews, being enslaved, couldn't do anything about it. And that turned out to be one of the crimes committed against the Jewish people. One of the crimes cr- uh, committed against the Jewish people. Now, um, then, according to Chazal, 80, 90 years go by, 86 years, 90 years go by, and the Jews are uh, enslaved. As a matter of fact, the whole generation or two goes by under the very harsh servitude. And then what happens? So this is the interesting part. They said, well, guess what? You're going to get out of Egypt. All right, we're going to leave Egypt. But you leave Egypt, are you going to leave all your... Is this grand crime that I just described going to be left uh, unaddressed? Uh, is it that the Jews will leave Egypt, but leave all their goods and wealth that they once upon a time had several generations ago behind, and uh, just say, we're lucky we escaped with our lives? The way somebody might say, I, had, I heard a lot of people when I was growing up, oh, I had a lot of land and good stuff back in Eastern Europe or Central Europe, but then I ran away, and I'm happy I, I, I ran away, although I'll never get my farm back. Look, my father, me, myself, and I told me he buried money somewhere in Lithuania, you know, at the beginning of the war under some tree or whatever. Like, what am I going to do? Go to Lithuania and look under the trees? Uh, you know, things like that happen. And so uh, what happened to this grand robbery, you might say, that the Jewish people were subjected to uh, at the beginning of the slavery period? How about a generation or two later when, uh, th- when they leave Egypt? So, I guess by the time we're talking, um, it was two or three generations in slavery, uh, they probably lost track of all that. Meaning, you know, people probably didn't know exactly where their stuff was. Maybe land they had by tradition. This land used to be mine. I don't know. You know, the the possibilities are endless. If somebody remained a slave in, in Goshen, which many did, as you can read from the Parsha, because it says 
that there wasn't this plague in Goshen. Rock Barrett's Goshen, Shoshone, and Israel, Ohio, Barad, you know, it was a large area of Goshen. Maybe they knew where the land was that used to belong to their family, which had now been confiscated by the, by the Egyptians. But uh, on the other hand, there were other Jews that were in other places around, and, um, you know, in other parts of Egypt. So let's say a Jew was sent to the salt mine somewhere along the Lower Nile River or the Upper Nile River, whatever they call it, in southern Egypt. They don't know what land they had back in Goshen before it became enslaved and was dispatched to some work site. And you see where I'm going with all this. So when Hashem says, I want everybody to borrow stuff, nobody knows where their metalton is anymore. Nobody knows what actually happened. And it seems to me from the fact that he says borrow, and I'm trying to go with the shot, from the fact that he says borrow, it kind of uh, indicates to me that um, the Jews were supremely non-confident, non-self-confident. And if he says go take things, they'll feel like a guilty conscience. Uh, whereas if you say borrow it, that eases your conscience. And so we all know they're going to borrow and not return it. But if you tell somebody to take something, it, 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 it disturbs them if you don't feel it's yours. Even though, from a certain perspective, a self-righteous perspective, what do you mean it's not our, everything is mine. The Egyptians took so much from my family, they stole so much that all of it's mine. That's for somebody who's educated, well-fed, and uh, middle class, and life is good, and you know he can now make these value judgments. If you're a slave getting the heck out of Egypt, you say, I don't know what, I don't want to take anything from anybody, I don't want the master to be angry at me, I just want to leave. You understand? And so God has to sort of uh, beg them to, to, to borrow the stuff, and one imagines, therefore, that the clay kesim, clay zolv, and smolos that he took out of Egypt was equal to, or roughly equal to, the uh, metaltlin and karka that, uh, they, that they had lost in the original enslavement process. Therein lies some element of justice. That's what it seems to me. Therein lies some element of justice. After uh, thinking about this, like tonight, just now, before I open this up, just for the heck of it, I opened up the Mikras Gadolas, this art school one that I like with the Nakudas, and I just glanced into Kiskuni. I can't say that um, I'm a big reader of Kiskuni, even though he's very good, very posh of shot oriented, but I just noticed that here, and this is all in 11.2, chapter 11, verse 2, where Hashem says, Dabir no Bazneanam, Yishlam Yisraim, Yishlam Yisraim, Kleiches, 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 So, listen to this. Chizkuni says, Kleiches, Kleiches, Bimkom, Shehinichu Yisrael, Bateim, Ustedoseim, Ukleim, Shaloyach, Losesimahem. That this, the gold and silver they're taking out of here is to replace the Metaltlin that they couldn't schlep with them, that they were leaving behind, Back at the end, I think the last uh, uh, verse in, in Genesis, in, in, in uh, Bereshis, is uh, They got achuzot, they got land, they became well-to-do back in Joseph's time and in those generations. But think about this. Um, the metaltlin itself, let's say, for example, someone that had uh, furniture. I'm just making this up. Some have furniture uh, and house, a lot of furniture. And now they're leaving Egypt. Even if they co-locate their grandfather, their great-grandfather's uh, furniture, uh, what are you going to do? Schlep a baby grand piano through the desert? You know, say, that's not practical. Uh, take all that furniture? On the other hand, now speaking very uh, capitalistically, you reduce it to cash. Cash you can always carry. Cash and carry, right? So, we usually, we're trying to clay cash, clay silver, some of those. 
he's suggesting very uh, intelligently that, uh, don't worry, God is saying, yes, you left all your stuff behind, but you got this value in cash. And if the Egyptians will chase after you to get their gold and silver back, then the implication is like that. Then you say, fine, then give me my metaltalon. Give me my metaltalon. And uh, therefore, if Egypt says, uh, you stole things on the way out, the Jews can respond, you confiscated illegally or unethically all the goods that we had when you enslaved us out of nowhere and we weren't even doing anything to cause the enslavement to incite the enslavement. And so it's a tit for tat, as it were. It seems to me that if you look at it that way, then it reduces the episode of the taking of the gold and silver from something like petty uh, you know, Jewish larceny or something like that to an act of historical justice, right? At least some historical justice. You're taking gold and silver and you're leaving them the things that they confiscated which were equal to the gold and silver. Including, by the way, the land. That's what Cheskuni points out. Uh, the, so if the Egyptians come and say, we want our money back, the Jews say, well, give us the land. Or give us, give, give us what you owned us. I kind of like that shot. Uh, now, I told you last week or two weeks ago, the Arizal and people like that, they don't feel comfortable with the whole parsha anyway. So obviously they must not look at it the way I'm looking at it. And they say, the clay itself is, is the Nitzotza Shal Kedusha. You know what I mean? You take the lost souls in Egypt, like Pharaoh's daughter, Basia, or people like that. That's okay with me. But if you want to go, it seems to me, with a uh, with, if we ask ourselves what, what really happened in the, in the simple shot way, I would suggest that this is the most uh, straightforward way to understand uh, this part of the episode of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which I don't think we pay attention to. Who thinks, I never thought about it before, who thinks about the fact that when the Jews were enslaved, a gigantic amount of wealth was also confiscated from them. The same way that today, if you say, whatever happened to the six billion that Germany took, they only paid back less than a billion. Now, to be perfectly honest, it's not true. Since 1952, Germany's paid tens of billions because they chose to. I'm talking about what they paid to survivors individually, like my father or something, and what they paid to Israel more and more. But that's because Germany's rolling in the dough, so it doesn't bother them. Uh, in ancient Egypt, they weren't Germans. In ancient Egypt, they would, if, if they could, they would get away with just letting the slaves go and keeping all the money behind. That's the kind of mamzerim that Paro and these guys were. So, uh, anyway, I just wanted to share that thought. And with that, I bid you a good week.